week, we talked about how power has become an idol in, in, in our culture, in the United States, in the West, in the modern world, etc., and including with many Christians. Uh, and, and, and we kind of talked about how we mean that both in the sense of both positively having power and pursuing it or attaining it, and also kind of in a counterintuitive way, negatively in terms of redefining power in ways that are like not having it is, is, is an idol. Um, and by we are finding our identity, our dignity, value, and worth um, either in being in control or being oppressed and, and subject to that. So we talked a lot about that last week. And this week, um, I want to talk about what, like, what's the alternative? <laughs> like, what does it actually look like to live in a, a world that has gone mad, um, which is... Gosh, I feel like that's still, even still understating uh, the way the world seems to go sometimes. And also, like, how do we respond specifically to this very real challenge of what it's like to be in the crosshairs of, of the powerful? Uh, and how, how do we respond to that as Christians specifically? And as you can see, um, Mordecai uh, is a very a sympathetic figure uh, for answering that question, right? He gives us this very honest and realistic account of uh, an example and painting a picture of, of, of what that looks like in ways that are, are, are not really exactly holding back. I mean, I just, I can't get over the, the line in, that, in chapter 4 where it's saying he's like, he's shouting this and, and grieving his lament from the rooftops. Um, and, and he can't go into certain areas of the city because, um, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? Uh, so we, we see the difficulty and the challenge that is that experience. And so uh, let's, let's just start by talking about how Mordecai's faithfulness and kind of tracing that through what Maria just read for us this morning. And, and his faithfulness is both with a prompt and without a prompt at the same time. Like, he, there's kind of two different examples here. The first, and before we jump into that, actually, I want to remind you, um, this guy, Mordecai, has no power whatsoever, right? This is not a, a, an official in the royal court like we talked about in week one of the sermon series. He has no political status. He has no position, no power whatsoever. He is an aged exile from a foreign country to, for, for, for Persia and, and has really nothing to offer or to use as influence. It implies the reason why he's initially hanging out at the gates and uh, outside the palace is that he's, lo- he's loitering basically because of family loyalty and faithfulness, right? He, he, he has adopted his cousin, who is decades younger than him, Esther, and so she is his functional daughter. And now she's been, you know, taken away to be a concubine queen to the emperor of a, of a, of a kingdom that is not his own. And so he's hoping to catch a glimpse of her, hoping to have whatever contact he can with her being so far apart. And that is, that is, an, is in and of itself, even the setting of his example is faithfulness, Right? He's not abandoning her to the harem. While doing this, in, the, in that context, in that setting, he, he just happens to overhear this assassination plot, and not just any assassination plot, but between two of the king's eunuchs, in which you, if you were here last week, you know that um, King Ahasuerus, which I'm 
thank you. I'm glad Maria read Scripture this morning so I can, like, just pronounce it as best as she has. Um, King Ahasuerus, every year, takes 500 boys, young boys from the kingdom, castrates them, makes him his servants, and that's who this is. And actually, in hindsight, I would, if I were a eunuch, I would want to assassinate the king too um, after all that. So there's something about this that makes kind of sense. You can, you can sympathize with this, right? Um, he knows that if this is affecting his inner circle, if these eunuchs are the ones that are plotting it, then he knows that he can only share this information with the most reliable of, uh, of, of channels that he can, and that's with Esther. And even her own faithfulness in this, it says that she has not shared her lineage, her, her, her Jewishness with anybody, and so she was faithful, and that's how he knew he could trust her too. It is all woven together with this theme of faithfulness. Now, I want, to, I want to point out something that when we are reading something that is so removed from our experience, culturally, geographically, historically, or otherwise, it can be easy to miss and forget that King Ahasuerus is not, is not a friend or ally of the Jewish people, okay? He is an enemy of Israel. Mordecai just ethnically, but not even beyond that. Personally, Mordecai hasn't seen his adopted daughter. About five years have passed between last week and this week in the text that we're talking about. He hasn't seen her in five years because of this king, because she was taken from him. So if anything, Mordecai had significant personal and political motive to just let the assassination happen. He had all kinds of reasons nobody would blame him for if he just turned the other way. Conceptually, that's significant, but I, I think that should be a lot more shocking to us. Because culturally, right now, and I'll, I'll be really blunt about this, too many Christians, and by too many I mean if there are any Christians that this is the case, this is too many, too many Christians now are willing to believe Conspiracy theories to justify power grabs, to deny reality as fake news in order to further an agenda. You don't see that with Mordecai. He does the exact opposite. He sees an actual conspiracy right in front of him, a conspiracy that is, actu that is, that is targeting a political and personal enemy of his, and then he acts to protect a state, a nation state, that's at least passively anti-Semitic enough that it feels the, he feels the need to hide his Jewish identity. To say that that's not politically expedient is an understatement of astronomical proportions. His faithful love of enemy shames our foolish love, greater love of our agenda. But it's not just horizontally that he is faithful in terms of his civic duty. He is also vertically faithful in terms of his worship. In, ver in chapter 3, verse 2, where, where it says that he did not bow down or pay homage. The, the way that that phrase, pay homage, is, is used in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, it is used to describe something that is treated as divine. So it's not just a kind of generic honoring or, or showing respect what it's implying here is that Haman was, being, was expecting to be treated like a god in the way that he was bowed down to. 
and paid homage to. And it's reinforced in verse 4 when it says, for he had told them that he was a Jew. It's, it's communicating here that, 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 that his conscience was being provoked in this, right? This is, now, this is, this is thousands of years before words like religious and liberty were put together to, to mean something that actually had a legal definition. Uh, so that didn't exist in ancient Persia. And so he was forced between, to choose between bowing to a worldly power in Haman or, or bowing to an otherworldly power in God. You put these two things together, right? A horizontal and a vertical faithfulness. And what you see is something that is I, I, disturbingly necessary to point out, which is that loving your enemy does not compromise your love for God. I know that's crazy, and I know some of you are like, well, yeah, duh, Jesus says love your enemy, but we have so many exceptions in our minds when we, even when we say that. But what about this situation, or what about this circumstance, or what if it's this person? That is not, that is not even within the margin of error for Mordecai. We don't get the freedom to ask that. Now, how we do that is another story. Like we can, our love for God can be compromised if we define loving our enemy in ways that are up to us instead of rooted in God. But that's a wisdom issue. That's not an asking of whether or not we should. That question has been answered for us. Does that make sense? Okay, if it doesn't, feel free to ask in the Q&A. Now, we see in chapter four, and I think this is really important to, to you know, I, I was going to initially preach on just this section but chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is really important because it helps us to understand and appreciate the effect of his faithfulness or his fruitfulness, right? Because he did, it did bear some fruit. His faithfulness bore some fruit. It saved the king's life. Not that he got to taste any of that fruitfulness, right? Chapter 2 actually ends really suddenly. Um, you would expect that like, okay, his, his name is recorded in the royal chronicle, Therefore, he got this reward, and it, it skips that last part and just goes straight into introducing Haman and how he was promoted. And so it's this kind of, uh, you know, literary whiplash that you get and it, because it sets up this ex expectation of reward, and then it switches to Haman. So who's Haman? We have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea who Haman is. He comes out of the blue. There's no context for who he is other than two things. One, he's an Agagite. And we'll be talking about that more in a few weeks because it's important, but kind of a little bit beside the point here. But secondly, his, word, his name, Haman, sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath. Uh, so once again, we have another name in the book of Esther that is a Hebrew pun. And by the way, I mean, even at this point, you can see how much that is representative of his, of his conduct, right? Mordecai's reward... The fruitfulness, the incentive that he got for this horizontal faithfulness to report this assassination plot was zip, nothing. He got nothing for it. There was no incentive. There's no reward. The reward for his vertical faithfulness toward God was far worse. The sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is basically like, imagine like you're wearing just rags made out of burlap sacks and that's it. 
Like it's, it's scratchy, it's uncomfortable. The whole point is it's, it's representative of your internal experience and you're feeling it on the outside of your body and it's this like reminder to direct your, your grief and your extreme lament toward God. And that grief is twofold. Right? On the one hand, he's, he's, he's terrified about the, the, this impending threat to his people, to his family, to loved ones, to his culture, to his way of life, to his, his faith. He's also probably mortified at the fact that he's being blamed for it. There's some shame in this as well. <laughs> so where's the good news in this? Like, so what, what, what is God doing? Well, the good news for, for this part of for Esther is there, there isn't any good news in this part of Esther. We know that there is good news even in the midst of it that we cannot see because we know it's the end of our story, or because we know the end of their story. And before we talk about that, let me like, give a qualifier, uh, especially if you haven't been here for the last couple weeks. Um, this, their story so far is as dark as it sounds, right? Every single circumstance that they have experienced, Mordecai and Esther, without exception, from chapters 1 through 5, which is the majority of Esther, is some form of severe injustice or oppression or being got wrong, <laughs> either by omission for not being properly rewarded or by commission, by being blamed for and being used to, to, to inspire the genocide of an entire people across an empire. Every single one. Like any of us, it's important to, to, to just sit and appreciate the fact that when we are in the thick of feeling powerless to affect the brokenness of this world, when we are feeling powerless to change our circumstances or feeling powerless to protect our loved ones when something happens to them, just like that, Mordecai and Esther cannot see the good news in chapter 4. But we know that there is good news because we know the end of their story. We know that by the end of Esther in, uh, in, in this book, that, there's, that despite their circumstances, despite all of that oppression, despite all of that hardship, all that difficulty, God could not have more perfectly or providentially placed them to save his people. Like It's, it's, it's actually kind of hilarious. Chapter 6, uh, which we're going to get to, uh, at one point, the king can't sleep, so he takes and asks for what I imagine is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of NyQuil, um, which is reading the, the book of Royal Chronicles, right? Um, and he comes, he just happens to come across this passage that is referenced in verse 23 when it says that, that, uh, that Mordecai's deeds were recorded in the book of Chronicles. He comes across that and realizes he hasn't been rewarded, and so he asks Haman how to, be, how to reward someone who has been good to the king. And Haman, in his arrogance and self-centeredness and narcissism, says, ooh, he's talking about me. And says, well, these are all the things that you should do, and you should let him have parade him through the city on a horse. And king, the king's like, oh, that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. And Mordecai's shame is redeemed. So, and the one who would put that shame on him is now the one responsible for honoring him in front of the entire empire. 
Not only that, God uses a concubine queen who has been isolated from anyone she shares beliefs or values or culture with in order to save everyone who shares in the Persian Empire her beliefs, values, and culture. There's nobody more disconnected from the rest of her people, and yet she is the one that God is going to use to save and undo all of this. And not just to undo it, but to exalt the Jewish people. Like, let me put it this way. The occasion of this intended genocide and the instrument of the Jewish people's terror becomes an empire-wide holiday. Like, put that on your Hallmark card and smoke it. I don't know how you do that. Don't, don't think too hard about it, right? And it's for a people who were previously too afraid of the state to reveal their religious identity, their Jewish people, their Jewish identity, to the degree that by the end of it, there's a, there's a, there's a verse that says that people who were not Jewish started calling themselves Jewish because they wanted to be like them. You know, we, we love to quote the, that line in the story of Joseph in Genesis that what man intends for evil, God will use for good, but I'm convinced that we rarely believe it. That, that even our most, like man's greatest threats to his people, like to the, what we do to each other, is a tantrum, is less than the tantrum of a spoiled child compared to the rescue that God accomplishes. It's impotent. It's actually not a threat. And we know that because it's the end of their story. But what about for us? Right? What's, what's the end of our story? Because we're, we're in the midst of this, right? We're in the thick of it. We can't really know how our story is going to end. Actually, we absolutely can. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, is a great summary of how our story ends. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor sackcloth and ashes, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Unlike Mordecai and Esther, we actually do know the end of our story in the midst and in the thick of our story. And that transforms and changes everything. That is a, a priceless gift that we take for granted and a resource that if it doesn't change our experience and, or posture of living in a world that's gone mad, no matter how mad it gets, I don't think we believe it. And we absolutely don't spend enough time imbibing it and tasting and seeing that that is good. So to, to kind of wrap this up, I want to fill out two implications that are in light of the story that we're reading in Esther, but are also in light of the end of our story in Revelation. It's kind of, okay, what's the Venn diagram overlap of those two things? And it's this. The first is this. We are called to a horizontal, faithful presence. 
This word, this term faithful presence, I'm taking and, and, and stealing outright from uh, an author named James Davidson Hunter who def- defines faithful presence as nurturing the world where God has placed you. Nurturing the world where God has placed you. Faithful presence is not activism. It's not, it's not defined by worldly power. Here, let, me, let me give you an example. This, um, last night... I was having trouble sleeping and just scrolling through Twitter, which is a terrible idea. <sighs> I, I hear your rebuke. Um, and, and I came across this video. Uh, I know nothing about soccer, so if I butcher this, you just, I repent. Um, there was a, a, an Australian soccer team that won the Australian League national, you know, national championships. And this video was of a player who, was, who, who kind of made a beeline for the, the stands um, and you find out that he, he's going to the stands to pull onto the field with them to celebrate their water boy um, who has Down syndrome. And they pull him onto the field. And while he's pulling him from the stands, you see another one of his teammates start to take the metal off, of his, uh, off his neck and puts it on the water boy's neck. That's what faithful presence is. We are the water boy for God. He pulls us from the stands. He calls us into the game. The game was over. I know the analogy doesn't extend that far. But like, it is, it is, it is that different from how we expect or want to be God's athletes who are winning the game. But we do not realize or appreciate that actually our indirect support of what God is doing as the water boy is actually worthy of a medal in God's eyes. And he multiplies our faithfulness and our faithful presence in ways that we don't have, we don't have categories for. Our imaginations just cannot, are not even big enough. My point in this is, is that whether you are powerful or powerless, God redeems our story to, to, in order to end with We live happily ever after. That frees us from any pressure that's forcing, uh, 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 any pressure of forcing with worldly power what only God can do. And it also frees us unto seeking the welfare of wherever God has placed us. And I use that word welfare intentionally because that's, it comes from uh, Jeremiah 29 where God tells his people in exile in Babylon to seek the welfare of the city where I've placed you, for in its welfare I will, you will find your welfare. The word for welfare, if you were in the membership class last week, you know is shalom. It means holistic human flourishing. Love and nurture the world where God has placed you, the place and the people right in front of you. And even if you feel like a water boy, you have no idea what God is going to do through you. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, Right? I'm not saying that that means we should be uh, checking out or not caring about what's going on in the world or, or political avenues that we are invited into. What I'm saying is that what works should never define what is faithful. What works should never define what is faithful. Because faithful presence is not a strategy. Like, how many of you are like, oh, Jesus, when you say pick up your cross and follow me, that sounds like a really effective strategy? No! That's the entire point. There's, no, there's nothing strategic about it. It's not effective. For those of you who are in Enneagram 3, like you know that that is harder than it sounds even. 
okay? I'm a three. I love what is effective. It makes my heart sore. That was not an exaggeration. It doesn't matter. It's a calling, not a strategy. Faithfulness never guarantees fruitfulness. That's actually not the point of faithfulness. Faithful presence is not a means to an end, but a posture of radical trust in God's faithfulness for results. And how different is that from the fear-mongering and anti-visions of the world? See, Mordecai takes on significant personal risk with no hope or expectation to profit. He influences from a place of extreme weakness, not a position of strength, and yet he has empire-wide impact cosmically disproportionate to his actions. Initially, that's a very negative thing, (laughs) and yet God more than redeems it and reverses it. All of that is because of God, not Mordecai, not because of how faithful he was, but because God used it. So if that's the horizontal dimension, here's the second thing, and after this, we'll go into the Q&A. The vertical version of faithful presence, and actually, what I just, everything I've just said up until this point is utterly dead in the water and powerless and meaningless if it is not if it is not centered on, rooted in, and flowing out of worship. Um, uh, and a writer named Kristen Sanders, uh, in an extended Lord of the Rings analogy about how Christians ought to live in a world gone mad instead of a world gone mad, she refers to it as as Mordor. Um, she wrote an article with the best title I've ever seen. I'm just, I'm insanely jealous. Like, it's just, it's, I don't know how to top this. I went to Mordor and all I got was this winsome t-shirt. And she says this, and this is, this is a one-sentence summary of what I'm trying to articulate with this point. What Christians need in Mordor is to be more like hobbits, not using their influence for ill or fighting fire with fire, but singing songs of home. And home is as good of a one-word description and summary of Revelation 21 as I can possibly imagine. And you have no idea how powerful that actually is. That's not getting in the way of your loving your neighbor of yourself. It is actually a necessary prerequisite in ways that we do not, full, we do not even remotely appreciate. She goes on to fill this out, and she's, she quotes a, a, a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas in his book, Resident Aliens, who says, through its worship... The church confronts the world with a political alternative the world would not otherwise know. Let me pause there, actually. Do you realize that what you're doing right now is intensely, irrevocably, and just fully, comprehensively political? Like, even if I weren't preaching a sermon that had, you know, was from Esther, which is about, like, geopolitics and the ancient Persian Empire, like, even if that weren't the case, every Sunday you're here, you're doing something political. That is the case because we are proclaiming that Jesus is the King of Kings. We are saying, politically speaking, that He is a higher power than anything going on in the world currently. Did you know in the Old Testament, the only time the the phrase King of Kings was used to refer to somebody? It was a Persian emperor. It's actually not used to refer to God in the Old Testament. It's not until the New Testament that Jesus becomes labeled the King of Kings because it's saying even greater than that. I'm gonna, let me 
finish this quote here from Harwas. He says, The tribalism of nations occurs most viciously in the absence of a church able to say and show in its life together that God, not nations, rules the world. Let me, if you could leave that up for a second. I want to kind of riff on that. You've heard me use the phrase post-Christian culture. If you listen to, follow, read Tim Keller, you know that that's like his entire thing is like, what does the church look like in a post-Christian culture? And it feels like the last, I don't know, four to six years have kind of said, hold my beer to that, okay? A huge reason why that is the case, which is not shocking and surprising to anybody because this, all this negative polarization is a symptom of that. The huge reason why that is the case that has been surprising is how many Christians have contributed to it. That the polarization that we're seeing is a result, I'm convinced, and the tribalism that we are seeing, the reasons why our nation is raging in vain right now is because there is a cataclysmic vacuum in the church that understands and sees worship as the highest thing it can do ever. And that is, like, we're telling on ourselves with the, the anxiety and the polarization that is ripping through the church as well. My point is this, the single most potent, world-changing, subversive political act any of us can do is making weekly gathered worship, by that I mean word, sacrament, and song with the whole body, central in your life. I mean, how many of you, like, you hear a story either in history or contemporary where you hear about a Christian who dies for their faith, and, you know, they're martyred, and they are given the opportunity to either choose Jesus or continue to live and they choose Jesus. And how many of you, you don't have to show your hand, because I might be totally wrong, and it's just me, and I'm projecting, and I don't want to like, be left alone. Um, uh, how many of you just are just kind of in awe of, like, how? And it kind of holds up a mirror that helps you, like, see more clearly, I don't think my faith is there. I don't think I could do that. But that question of how is actually really important, right? Because when we sing, which I, had no, I did not know until this morning that Elle had chosen in Christ alone for after the sermon to, for us to sing, but when we sing later this service, no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, we sing not only about the reality of our own personal and individual salvation, our forgiveness that we have in Christ, all of that absolutely, but also the reality that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords over all, every, and any worldly power, period, full stop, no qualification or disclaimer whatsoever. I don't think we have that lens when we, when we sing songs like that very often. And if we realize that and we believe that, maybe it dialed down some of the anxiety in our society. Maybe the world would be a little bit less mad. And I would even say that any effort or activism or campaigning or politicking that doesn't start with worship will be compromised by worldly power, and we are living through the consequences of exactly that. Now, if you put all this together, the horizontal and the faithfulness, in living in the light of the end of our story, God will use it to change the world. That's actually guaranteed. I know I've been talking about, like, we shouldn't let what works define what is faithful, but that is rooted not in our action or faithfulness, but in God's. That's how we know that that can be true, because we know the end of the story. And it may not happen in our time or how we expect, but He will do it. It's not an accident, right? Um, 
if you're a student of the civil rights movement, you know that most of the, especially the most famous um, protest marches in the civil rights era, you know when they happened? Sunday afternoon. That wasn't a scheduling convenience. That was because marches started inside the church. They followed worship because worship was actually the beginning of the peaceful protest and march. And I don't think that it is an accident at all that a people who experienced generations of oppression I will never experience or go through are able to not fight back that are able to turn the other cheek, are able to pray for the people who are beating them as they are asking for just equal dignity and rights, in part because they had practice. They had a lot of practice leading up to that moment. And that practice was fueled with worship. This, this would be like the dead last thing I said before Q&A. How many of you are following what's happening in Iran right now? Anybody? Okay, there is, if you don't know, there are protests erupting all over the country. Yes, it's happened before. What's very weird and different is um, it's being led by women in an Islamic republic. They're standing on cars and burning their hijabs. Very few people, myself included until a couple months ago, had no idea that for about the last decade, Iran has been seeing a, a great awakening on par with what we saw in the United States in the 19th century. Tens of thousands of people have become Christian in supernatural ways in Iran. And I don't think, that, I will not be, okay, I'm not going to conjecture and say that that's, these two things are connected. I will tell you, I won't be shocked at all if we find out once we actually are able to understand what's going on right now, if that is the case. I will also not be shocked if in Revelation 21, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we're able to look back and see that Mordecai's faithful presence is linked in God's intention and his sovereign, subversive love all the way up and through until this moment now. Because Iran is Persia. We don't have an imagination big enough for God. I'm really glad he's not limited by that. Okay, let's see what questions we got this morning. Several Thanks, Maria. Okay. It seems that the idea that God uses evil for good can bolster our inclination to discount others' pain because it will all be okay in the end. But in reality, that is often the last thing people who are suffering need to hear. I don't think deep lament and deep hope are truly at odds, but practically, it feels like we often choose one path over the other. Any thoughts and tips on how to approach this? Oh, I have many thoughts, yes. Um, Misuse of something, especially a literal piece of scriptural truth, misuse should never mean disuse, period. That other people weaponize or use and wield this in a way that is not intended, the way it was intended to, to be wielded, like that's not scripture's fault. That's, that's sin. And so I, we should recover what man intends for evil God will use for good but from a place of deep and profound empathy because Mordecai would have known that phrase from Genesis himself 
I think he probably would have wanted to hear it when it's hard to see God in the thick of this, this, that stuff. And that's not a promise. Like, like, one of the ways that that is most often misused is in saying, like, you will see the good that God uses for this. And that's actually not necessarily the case, right? The good that you see may not ever be something you get. The, the good that is seen, you may never get to be the one to see it. So, if that doesn't lead us to, if in saying that to someone who is hurting and grieving, if that does not lead us or support and facilitate our deeper empathy with them, we don't understand what we're saying. Okay, cool. Next question. If faithfulness never guarantees fruitfulness, what would you say to encourage those who have been faithful but have seen little fruit and are very discouraged? Um, I would say this because I've lost track of how many times or how much time I've spent in those shoes myself. God sees it. God sees it. He knows it. He's aware of everything you have sacrificed, everything you have worked and put effort into, every thanklessness of it. And that's why he gives you that promise that at the end of the story, that no matter what has, is the cause of the tears, he will be the one to personally wipe them away. You're not alone in it. And it is a gift to know that just because you can't see what God may or may not be doing with it doesn't mean it's not happening. Thank God. In fact, sometimes when you're in the midst of that, that's the only thing that keeps you going is trusting that, you, that, that the good you're trying to do is not limited to what you can see. Like a, like a drunk who's looking for his keys only underneath the street lamp because that's where you can see and it's bright. That's, God's not limited by that. Okay, next question. If Christians should only sing songs of home, like what hobbits do, doesn't that mean turning a blind eye to the injustices of the world? Additionally, how does this relate to dominion theology? It, it seems to stand at opposition, which might be the point. Um, okay, if by dominion theology, because I'm pretty sure that's a synonym for uh, the, uh, theonomy, if you're asking if what I'm saying is different from that, yes and amen. Theonomy or this idea, like, um, stay tuned, we're literally going to have a sermon called Why Christian Nationalism is Wrong, or something like that, right? This is different. This is not that. Congratulations, you did catch the subtext of what I'm trying to say, okay? I, I did not say we should only sing songs of home. I said that we should especially, and that should be primary. The reason that she, like this, this quote from her article is because in, if you remember in, in Lord of the Rings, in Fellowship, you have this contrast. You have Boromir, right? Who, I'm sorry, I'm, this is going to be a nerdy rabbit hole. But if you're a nerd, you can be like, yes, I'm filled up for a year. Um, it's not that long. Um, Boromir is like, this ring, this is a gift. We should use it. This worldly, it's called the ring of power for a reason, guys. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol, token symbol for uh, making power a god. And, he, and Gandalf's whole point to Boromir is, you can't use this and not be corrupted by it. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's Lord Acton, that's not Gandalf, but you get the point. 
later, when, when Sam and Frodo are traveling through, trying to get into Mordor, they encounter Boromir's brother, Faramir, who, unlike Boromir, resists the temptation and sends them on their way. Faramir, later, at the very end, he is with his father standing over Boromir's body because he dies right after he repents of, 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 of his wrong and trying to take the ring from Frodo. And, and Denethor, who's the, the, their dad, who's the steward of Gondor, says to him, I wish you had made a decision. I wish you had brought the, the ring back. Faramir says, I wish I had known that. I would have made a different, a different decision. And, and Denethor says, no, you don't. You wouldn't. You want to be like the kings of old who, who are gentle and who are loving and compassionate. We live in a different world, and that is weakness now. Tolkien's entire point in writing that line is to expose it as the stupid, I'm trying to use preaching appropriate language here, absolutely catastrophically foolish as it, 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 that it is. Okay. Later when he's alone, Denethor with Boromir, or Faramir goes and dies in battle, and then grieving over a different son, Pippin comes in. And he says, I want you to sing me a song. Pippin says, I don't have any songs worthy of the halls of kings. And then you see that Denethor starts to get it. He says, don't tell me what is appropriate here. Sing me songs of home and sing the song of home so that I know that even if my effort is not fruitless, it is not in vain. Tolkien's point and Esther's is this, and then we're going to move to communion. Is that there is something that cuts through all of the fear, all of the darkness, all of the misuse of power, all of the abuse, all of the oppression, all of the things that are going on in the world, all of the madness, and all of the ways that we, yes, also nevertheless contribute to it. And that is an ultimate greater beauty that has told us what the end of the story is. And we know what the end of the story is because we know what the middle of the story is. We know that at the middle of the story, this God came down onto earth, incarnated as Jesus Christ, and subjected himself to those same worldly powers that we are struggling to understand why this is happening to us, and we are doubting whether God is there. And it says in Philippians that he emptied himself of, and he emptied himself in love. He emptied himself of glory. The word for empty is, is kenodoxia. He emptied himself of his significance. He humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. The reason for that is because he knew the end of the story too. And be, he wants us to know and to see and to experience the end of the story before we get there. Jesus' resurrection, therefore, is the down payment that we can know, and the ripple effects it has through history is how we know we don't have to look in blind faith to Revelation 21, hoping against hope that that is the end of the story. We can see it force its way through and crash into our now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends, with whom Revelation 21 says that God's people, he will be their God. This is a picture in the hospitality of the Last Supper this is a picture of God with his people. It's over food and drink. 
He's with him. He takes the bread. He breaks it. He says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Likewise, he takes the wine. He pours it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. It is, this is what seals your fate. Not toward death, not a trajectory toward death, but a trajectory toward life because I am taking your place in that trajectory of death in order to ensure that you arrive at life. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I come. You know what's fascinating about that? Is that the rest of the New Testament, the, the epistles, all connect his death to his kingship. His political authority over all things is earned in his obedience unto death. That's very much different from any power of this world. And very good news. If that is your hope, even just a little bit, God uses that. He'll work through that. He can work with that. He can work with any of us. We're just the water boy. Praise God. Come forward after I pray. We have all of the bread is gluten-free. We have wine and juice. And you're welcome. This is your table as much as the Lord's. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not just... It's, just not, it's not just good news that you're going to do something someday. It's good news that you are at work even in and through everything now. That in a world gone mad, it is your faithful presence, first and foremost, that empowers our own. So Lord, nourish us with that truth and with your table that you set in the midst of any enemy. It's safe because of what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for the end of our story in you. We pray your name. Amen.